Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello and welcome. I am today talking to the irrepressible David Meerman Scott. David is the author of, it says on his website, six, but he told me 11 books. He misses off the ones that aren't quite so popular. Some of them, like the new rules of marketing and PR, are in their sixth edition, I think he says. We talk about that. We talk about his new book, Phenocracy, which he has co-authored with his daughter. So what was it like to co-author a book with your 20-year-old daughter? Um, We get into that. I take him back to his early days in Japan, and we discuss his career trajectory. I think I call Rafa the cycling brand Zaffa. That's entirely my error. Sorry, Rafa. And then we talk about what David wished he knew back then, mainly about how he charges for his time as an advisor. And we get some book recommendations. Fantastic, high energy, great conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So I'm David Merriman Scott, and I was a B2B sales and marketer at big companies for about 15 years in Tokyo and in Hong Kong and in Boston and in New York. And in 2002, I was working for Thomson Reuters and I got sacked. (laughs) So I had to figure out what the hell I was going to do with my life. And so for the past 17 years, I've been happily unemployed, writing books, giving speeches all over the world and serving as an advisor for technology companies. So how did you end up overseas? I mean, that's quite a rare job doing sales and marketing overseas as an American, is it not? Uh, Yeah, it is pretty, pretty odd. So I was working in the financial information business and I absolutely loved the idea of doing something internationally. And the company I was working for said, hey, how would you like to go start an office in Tokyo? And I'm like, that sounds cool. I was 26 years old working for a small-ish company and they sent me to Tokyo. I was the only person in the company located in Asia, which was amazing because everyone else was 12 hours time zone away. And so I was able to do my own thing. And I really liked the idea of being able to do my own thing. Ah, and Tokyo on your own. That must have been a hell of a culture shock. Yeah. Well, I acquired a wife, a daughter and 128 boxes by the time I came home. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I do like the uh, the time zone difference. I've spent a lot of time in the UK working for companies in North America and certainly those that are West Coast from the UK, you get, you've got almost your entire day to yourself before anyone gets up and starts making your life miserable. There, there's some bad parts to it, especially when I was there because um, it was pre-email and actually the very end, tail end of when I worked in Asia, email started to pick up. But it was fax and telephone calls in the, in the early days. This was like 30 years ago. And it was terrible because the fax machine would go off in the middle of the night. And I had an office in my home. And then the telephone and, you know, like if, if the boss wanted to talk at 
10 o'clock in the morning his time. Well, you got to do it, even if it's midnight on Friday. But the good bits outweighed the bad bits. Where where did you pick up your, I guess, your methodology around sales and marketing? So I was really lucky because I was working in a financial, uh, I, I started in the financial markets. I was a bond trader in, on Wall Street, hated it but found that I loved the information side. I loved what was going on behind the screens. And so I worked in the financial information business for 15 years, roughly. And most of that time was pre-web. So by the time the internet came along in 1995, I already had a decade of experience understanding how real-time information works. And so I recognized really early, I was, I may not have been the first person to recognize, but I was absolutely the first person to write about the fact that marketing on the web was not about advertising anymore, but marketing on the web is really about creating content, publishing content. And so the first couple of books I wrote were all on that topic. And I got really well known for a book called The New Rules of Marketing and PR that uh, originally came out in 2007 and is now in the sixth edition and has sold 400,000 copies in English and it's in 29 other languages and, you know, on the bestseller lists and all that. Because I was the first person to clearly articulate that, that if you want to reach people on the web, it's about creating great content, whether that's blog posts or YouTube um, videos or a great website or whatever it might be. And uh, so I was, I guess I was lucky that, uh, you know, that's so funny with these art careers, isn't it? That, you know, you, you end up going down a path and it was really great because it gave me a, an unfair advantage, a head start on what marketing on the web is. Well, and not only that, you, the, the thing that you picked up is still true. In fact, even more so than it was then. I mean, then you could do all sorts of nefarious things to try and drive traffic and trap people. But Google keep making it harder and harder and harder and content keeps content that human beings want to consume continues to be the only sure source of driving decent traffic. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that's right. But I also think um, over the last five years, I've studied this a lot. I also think that so many people now understand that it's about creating content and too many of them are not doing it well. And what they're doing is they're doubling down on, you use the word nefarious, which I love, nefarious techniques. If you get on an email list because you buy something from somebody, all of a sudden they're sending you three emails a day. Or somebody um, asks to become connected with you on LinkedIn and as soon as you agree, they're trying to sell you something. Uh, or um, the social networks um, themselves were originally optimized around delivering content, but now they're optimized around selling ads. So I think that what, what 10 years ago was a world that felt so rosy and wonderful and, ooh, everybody's going to love one another because we're all going to create content, has often turned into a place that in some ways is, is dark and cold. And I think in your country with, with your political polarization around Brexit and in my country, the political polarization around Donald Trump has in the forms of content, especially on social networks, set countrymen against countrymen. You know, it's, it's really been, and, and the social networks drive that. So I think as I see it, what's happening is the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of 
superficial online communications, polarized communications at a time when people are hungry for a true human connection. So that's what I've been studying over the past five years, this idea of a true human connection. And and I think about the places that I have a human connection and it's around the things I love. Uh, I'm a massive fan of a lot of different things. And so I, I've been really digging into this idea of fandom recently. I know because I've seen you speak a couple of times that you are a, uh, a super fan of the Grateful Dead, amongst other things. I am. I am. <laughs> uh, I, I've seen the Grateful Dead 75 times. First time I was 17 years old. Um, the last time I saw them was two months ago. Now touring as the de- as Dead and Company since Jerry Garcia died. And I've been to 780 live concerts in my life. I mean, live music is really, really important to me. And what I recognized is that, yeah, the live music is great. Going to the events is great. But Probably more important is that the people who go with me are among my best friends. And so it's this human connection between people who are part of the same tribe, who love the same things, who uh, you know speak the same lingo. And I can go to a Grateful Dead concert, for example, and you know randomly bump into somebody who I've never met, and we could be talking like world friends. So that becomes really important and really interesting. Well, the thing is, in you can see that on, say, Kickstarter, you know, where you get that you can sell people the underlying product, but there's there's a there's a small number of things that a small number of fans are prepared to pay over the odds for. I, it's funny. I remember talking to the guys at Zaffa. You know, the guys who do cycling gear. They're one of the few companies that I've met that really understood it. And they reckon, I think there was 75 people who'd bought every every season by one of everything that they sell in their size, in every color. So what they do is they they arrange, nobody knows this, but if you do that and you become one of those one of those customers, then they invite you out for dinner. Right. And so there's so you know, you don't know you don't know that you can be in the club until you're in the club, but it's that sort of it's really meaningful for those people and also really meaningful for the organization to have a relationship with a small number of 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 fans. Yeah, yeah, the whole super fan thing. And the the going to dinner thing, Dom, is really, really, really interesting because my daughter and I decided to collaborate on this book called Fanocracy, turning fans into customers and customers into fans. And one of the things that we figured out really early by speaking with neuroscientists, we like we dug into this idea of fandom and among other things, talked to neuroscientists. And um, the idea of these human connections of being part of a tribe is actually hardwired in our brains. And it's a survival technique. Because our ancient brains say say to us, when you're part of a tribe, when you're part of a group, when you're part of a group that supports you, that's one among the most powerful human connections we can have. And there's one neuroscientist called Edward T. Hall who identified the different levels of proximity to define this idea of being close to other people. And further than 20 feet, is called public space and our brains don't track people. We know they're there, but we don't really track them. Inside of about 20 feet, between four feet and 20 feet, that's really interesting place because that becomes social space. That's like you walk into a room and you see people that are kind of near you. You begin to track them. You, 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 your ancient brain wants to know, is there danger here? 
Or are there people who are part of my tribe here? And then inside of four feet is called personal space. That's even more intimate. That's for like cocktail party distance, for example. So what that um, sporting gear company did by bringing people together for dinner is literally use this idea of you are part of a tribe and I want you to be within my personal space. I mean, I'm sure that's not the way they thought about it, but from a neuroscience perspective, that's fabulously powerful. And that's why... If I'm at a Great Dead concert or I go and do a, a cocktail party where my friends are, or even the reception at an event that I've been invited to where I don't necessarily know the people, but we're part of the same tribe, those are really powerful, positive connections. But if you get into a crowded lift, or as the Americans would say, elevator, <laughs> then you, you feel you feel like a little bit weird because you don't know those people. And that's a negative emotion that you can't help. So I think that from those of us who are business people, entrepreneurs trying to build fans of our business, how can we put people into closer proximity? Like, you know, like you suggested, invite them to dinner, your best fans to dinner or have a conference where you can invite customers and potential customers um, or go on a tour where you're going out to meet people. But some people say to me, well, David, yeah, that sounds great, but you know, we run a virtual business or we have customers all over the world. I can't go to dinner with all my customers. And then there's another, so there's another concept called mirror neurons that we discovered talking to neuroscientists. The mirror neurons are the part of our brain that fires when we see someone do something as if we're doing it ourselves. I will demonstrate it. And uh, those of you listening won't be seeing what I'm doing here, but you can imagine I've got a lemon in one hand and I've got a slice of lemon in the other hand. And if I take a bite of the slice of lemon, wow, it's really powerful. It makes my eyes close. My mouth puckers up. The, my saliva glands are doing their thing. It's like really tart. I mean, it's a really powerful thing to bite into a lemon. My brain is firing like crazy. But Dom, from seeing me do that and hearing me talk about it, your brain may be firing as well. And even some of you just listening who didn't see that on the video your brains may be firing too. So this concept of mirror neurons is really important for building fans because you can use video and photographs cropped as if you're within four feet of somebody to have people's brains fire as if you're next to them, creating that strong personal connection, which is exactly why we believe we personally know movie stars and television stars. Our brain tells us we know them. You don't know them. They're on a screen, but your brain says you don't know them. So we all can use this in our businesses. We can use video and photographs effectively in our businesses. Well, in fact, if you're in that lift with that movie star, you have to stop yourself saying hello because your brain just you see somebody and you, you don't make that connection that you know them because they've been on TV. You just about to say hello to them and then you realize you don't actually know them at all. Exactly right. In the past, what I've done with uh, in businesses I've run and, and with clients' businesses is we've said, look, who are the top 25 customers that might represent 60 or 80% of revenue? And where logistics does work, let's, get, let's take them out for dinner. And people say, well, well, well what, what will the agenda be? Well, we'll just ask them. Uh, if they were us and they were running our business, what would they do to make this business easier to do business with from their perspective? How about that? 
And you find that that fills the entire evening without any difficulty at all. And then there is that emotional connection. And then it's really hard for people to just quit on you and walk away without giving you the chance to fix something. It's exactly right. And the, the thing that we were fascinated about, I keep saying we because my daughter is my co-author on this book. Um, the thing that we were so fascinated about was that this is rooted, rooted in neuroscience. That's where it became really interesting is that it's not, it's not just something that, you know, like my old sales manager from 30 years ago would have said, David, get off your ass and go knock on doors and meet people. And like, yeah, 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 yeah. But there's actually that advice was rooted in the realities of neuroscience, which it was interesting. I'm glad I learned that now and not back then. <laughs> well, isn't you, so what you're saying is that still going and knocking on the door and speaking to somebody is more powerful than phoning them up or doing a video call? In the order that it's most powerful is in person, but then video call is way more important than just voice because, because of the mirror neurons thing. Because, because you're, even though, intellectually, you know, that if somebody is on um, a video call, that they're not in the same room as you. you intellectually, you obviously know that your brain doesn't know that your brain is firing as if you're actually in the same room. And therefore, the connection that's built, the powerful connection that's built there is one that's way stronger than just getting on with doing a voice call. That's important stuff. And so how come you ended up writing your latest book with, uh, with your daughter? Did she want to write a book with you? Did you want to write a book with her? What was the... Well, the, 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 the started because five years ago, as I started to research this idea of fandom in general, I didn't know really what direction this book was going to go. Um, but I was just researching the idea of fandom because I found it so fascinating. And I said to my daughter, she's, she's 26 now. So at the time she was 21 years old. And I said to her, you know, what is it with my Grateful Dead fandom? You know, I, I don't remember how many shows it was at that point, but call it 50 times. I've been to 50 Grateful Dead shows. What's all, what's that, what's that all about? And she goes, well, what about me? I mean, I'm such a massive Harry Potter, my daughter said, fan. My, my daughter said, I've read every book multiple times, seen every movie multiple times, gone to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter theme park in Orlando, Florida, several times, went to the UK so I could do the studio tour where they filmed the movies. And she told me that she wrote a 90,000 word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix. And she put that onto a fan fiction site that's, and that's been downloaded thousands of times and commented on hundreds of times. So we both geeked out about how much of a fan we are. And as I was starting to do more serious research around this idea of fandom, what I, I kept asking her questions. You know, she's obviously a different generation. She's my daughter, different gender because uh, she's a woman and, and she's mixed race. My wife's Japanese um, and she has a neuroscience degree from Columbia University. She's currently in medical school. So she has all the, she's really different. You know, she's a mixed race millennial woman and I'm a, you know, middle-aged white guy. So I said, well, what would a woman say about this? What would a young person say about this? You know, and, and I kept quizzing her. And then finally, I'm like, well, don't be an idiot. You should be like co-author. You should be co working with her on this project. You should be your co-author. 
Um, and besides that, she's a better writer. So, so then I said, Hey, would you like to work on this with me? It's, it's going to be a big project. You're in med school. So, you, you know, you, so I know it's a lot to ask. And she was, she was thrilled actually. And it's been a great partnership. It's, um, it's brought us closer together in many ways, which is kind of cool. I was going to say, it's, but it's it's one of those things. What is it? Nine somewhere between eighty and ninety five percent of by the time kids have finished high school, that's it. That's all the time you're going to spend with them, and so to do something material or meaningful with them after they've left home must be great. It's great, and the other thing that's really really interesting is that the only way to make this work was we had to be equals. I could not treat her as the you know the minor character co-author. Well, not the second time anyway. Yeah. No. I had to do it. I had to do it with us being equal. And she had to feel comfortable telling me that a chapter I wrote was terrible. And here's why. And here's what you need to do to fix it. And so that was actually, it it worked out great. I thought it was going to be difficult, but it wasn't. It worked out great. Because we learned to trust each other in a in a different way we than we trusted each other as a father daughter relationship. We had to trust each other as as co partners in this adventure of researching and writing and 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 talking about this idea of fandom. You know, in this book we wrote, Fanocracy. It's interesting though. Does, does do the Grateful Dead know that you exist, or does? Does Harry Potter, does the Harry Potter empire know your daughter exists? Is there, can they be bothered? Are they bothered? I guess that's where the, from, from the entrepreneur's side, it's, it's who are your fans? How do you create them? And then how do you monetize them? Because that, that must be the, you know, top 5% of your, of your fans could generate 80 or 95% of the margin. I think that can actually be correct in certain with certain fandoms. It's certainly true of the Grateful Dead because um, the Grateful Dead has figured out all kinds of different ways to to monetize people who are fans. Like for example, in January of 2019, I flew down to Mexico for three nights of Grateful Dead on the beach. And the package I bought, which included three three nights tickets, a hotel, and um, and meals, which was offered by the band through their partner, it was five thousand dollars. You know, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money to spend on a, a rock band. And I've bought seventy five tickets over the years, and and all that. So so. Now you asked, do this, does the band know? I, would the band know I exist? Probably. I mean, I'm on their their lists and all that as a fan, sure. But once I started to write and speak about the Grateful Dead, now they absolutely know who I am uh, because I wrote a book, Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead, that came out a couple <laughs> of years ago, and they absolutely knew about that book and. Um, Bill Walton, famous NBA basketball Hall of Famer, wrote the foreword to that book. And Bill is friends with the members of the band. And I I became friends with the band's photographer who did the photos for the book. So if you think of the Grateful Dead world as as different levels of the onion, so to speak, the band is in the middle. I'm pretty far out of the onion, but I'm there. (laughs) My daughter with Harry Potter 
No, but we've become friendly with Emerson Sparks, who who is the person who created MuggleNet, which is the most popular blog about Harry Potter. Uh, and we quoted him in our book, and he knows who we are, of course. And um, so it's interesting how you, you become closer and closer to those sorts of organizations. But I think if you're thinking about, if you're talking about an entrepreneur who sells um, a high ticket product or, you know, for example, um, a B2B software company. I'm on, on the board of advisors of HubSpot and HubSpot does marketing and sales and customer support technology. And they've got about 65,000 customers around the world. They know who their biggest fans are. They absolutely do. And um, they, they have ways that those fans can interact with them at different places, different events, um, different gr- user group meetings around the world. And that becomes really important. Yeah. So what are your, if you, what's, your, what are your, what's your advice for a sort of B2B entrepreneur listening to this? What do you have to do to create fans? Is there a, is there a process that you would go through? Yeah, um, we do have, there's 10 different ideas that we talked about in, in the book. And there's a number of, of different ways that organizations can do it. We already talked about one of the ways, which is to get closer to your fans physically. You know, we talked about inviting them to lunch or creating a meeting or virtually through this concept of mirror neurons. So that's just one idea. Another one that comes to mind, which I think is really important, is this concept of once you put your product or service out into the world, it's no longer fully yours. To be truly successful, you have to recognize that your product or service is now owned by the fans. And that's really interesting to think about because so many organizations don't think that way. I'll give you an example. So my daughter is really into creating art using Adobe Photoshop. And she's part of a a community of people who love to do this. And Adobe actually pretty aggressively doesn't like the fact that consumers use their product. They want to only focus on the B2B world. So one of the things that, and, and my daughter and her friends laugh at Adobe because one of the things they say is, you cannot say that you photoshopped something. You must say that you manipulated something using Adobe trademark circle R, Photoshop trademark circle R software. And she says, you know, we're all laughing at Adobe because they're trying to tell us how to talk about the product. Here we are fans who are eager to talk about Adobe, yet they're not interested in having us talk like fans or trying to control the way we talk. So I think what's important for B2B companies is to, re- for any company, for any organization, but particularly for B2B companies is to recognize that you no, no longer own that relationship once you put it out there, that, that product. I'll give you another example, Microsoft. Microsoft, as you may know, sells the vast majority of their revenue through their partner channel. They've got something like 300,000 partner companies. And I've learned a lot about the Microsoft Partner Channel. I speak at their Microsoft Worldwide Partner Conference um, sort of every other year-ish. I think I've done six times. And 
the partners run the partner channel, which I find fascinating. So they've got a, um, an online community, which is their partner community, where people who are partners can communicate with other partners. They can ask questions. They can, hey, you know, how do you make this particular thing work? Or can I hook this into that? And, and just questions related to Microsoft's products and services. And the partners answer the questions. Microsoft is there lurking. They know what's going on. They're seeing these interactions, but they let the partners run that channel. The partners ask the questions. The partners answer the questions. The partners are the people who are engaging in this channel. And uh, Katie Quigley, who is one of the senior marketing people over at Microsoft, says, David, people, the partners want to communicate with other partners. They don't want to hear from the company that made the product. They don't want to hear from us. They want to hear from the other partners. And, and Microsoft has cleverly figured that out. And unlike Adobe, they've just let the partners run with it rather than Adobe who's trying to control it. So I, I, the chapter title is Let Go of Your Creations. But the concept here is once you create something, it's no longer yours. It belongs to the fans. The value in that is just huge. You know, the, the depth of knowledge often in the, in, the, in the fan base is just so much deeper because they're using the product every day to solve the everyday problem, whereas the guys who are developing it are writing code a million miles away from, from the everyday use of it. Or somebody finds a thing that you can use it for that you never intended, but actually there's a whole, if you, if you are just open to that, there's a whole new seam of, seam of revenue from like-minded fans and then you've got you've got your case study you don't need to go and manipulate it you don't need to go and dream something up that's right or another example which i love is fans who dreamed up another way to use a product um, but it actually turned into something that went viral and that is um, the irobot um, robotic vacuum cleaner which is called the roomba so um, one of the cool things about a Roomba is, um, is there's a whole subculture of Roomba fans who take videos of their pets, their dogs and their cats, and even other animals riding on the Roomba around the house, right? It's, it's hysterical. And there's, there's like tens of millions of views of these YouTube videos of, I think there must be a at least a thousand YouTube videos of pets riding around on the Roombas. And it's, just, and it's wonderful. And that helps to get people interested in the Roomba. And what iRobot, the company that makes the Roomba, could have done is say, oh, this is not in the proper use of our product. You have to take those videos down. But of course, it's wonderful that people are sharing in this way. It draws attention to this product. And it's all fan-driven. Well, and also it's, there's an emotional connection seeing somebody's dog, silly dog video, which there might not be for a robotic vacuum cleaner. There's not, you know, so you, you know, you give it that emotional edge and that's part of building the brand. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And it says loads of things about it must be good at picking up pet hair, which, you know, you probably, a problem you probably want to solve. Yeah, 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 exactly right. Exactly right. And, and, and so I think that particular example is emblematic of this idea that, you know, once you put your product out there in the world, it belongs to the fans and the fan, let the fans take over, do what they want. If they want to create videos with their cat on, the, on your product, that's kind of neat and celebrate that, you know, don't get all bent out of shape that that's not a proper use of the product. 
Well, we had, uh, I remember that we once did a marketing campaign, which was uh, make yourself an offer you can't refuse. And as part of that campaign, that the response to it, one guy wrote, wrote back and again, pre, I guess it was, it was, it was at an internet company, but it was at the point where fax was still the main method of communication. So the fax came back and the guy said, I want you to cut the grass at my house. And if you cut the grass at my house, I'll buy a server from you. Nice. So, uh, so then the next, the next day we got in touch with him and what had happened is he'd sent that from work and he went home and his grass was cut. And he was, he said he stood in the kitchen and he looked out the window and he just said, shit, those guys are good. (laughs) And then his flatmate said, I've cut the grass. (laughs) (laughs) But he was so moved that he, that he shared the whole story with us the next day. And then that in fact, then became the campaign, which was better than the first campaign because now it had real people involved in it. It's real people. And, and you know, that's something, um, it's another, another thing that we talked about a little bit in the book is, you know, you mentioned real people is especially B2B companies, but all companies are guilty of using stock photos. And, you know, stock photos of people is exactly the wrong thing to be doing if you're trying to develop fans, because everybody on the planet knows when they go to your website and, and there's happy multicultural people on your website in the form of a photograph, you know, typically sitting around a conference room or staring into computers or whatever it is, every single person on the planet knows that's fake. Those are stock, mo- stock models that you purchased by pulling them out of a catalog. And so using real people like you just described, you know, cutting our grass. And if you get a shot of, the, of that customer out on their lawn, I mean, that stuff's gold, real photos, real people. That's gold. The other aspect of this is the language that we use in our marketing and on our website and in the communications we have with our customers or potential customers. You know, when it, and this, this is, again, it's something that B2B companies are more guilty of, but, but almost every company is guilty of, and that's using their own jargon and, and I call gobbledygook. So you've got technology companies who say, we're the flexible, scalable solution for improving business process using cutting edge technology because we have mission critical applications. And it's like, what the hell are you talking about? I mean, that, that is not the way that human beings speak. If you want to develop fans, you have to speak like a human and have photographs of real people. So all of these things are, are they're little things, but added up. Um, you're creating an organization that people can become a fan of rather than pushing people away because of these generic approaches. David, if knowing what you know now, which I'm sure there's a lifetime of accumulated wisdom, is there a is there a piece of knowledge that or, or something you now know that you think, God, oh, I wish I'd known that then? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, in the last ten years or so, I've only been doing advisory work for equity. I don't take cash; I take equity. And it's been fabulously lucrative because I've had three companies that um, have had transactions since I started working with them. A couple of uh, have gone public on the stock market. One was acquired. And I really wish that I had only worked for equity from the very beginning of my business. I, I think of myself as a um, the work I do as an advisor 
in the same way that a venture capitalist thinks of the way they do their work. So a venture capitalist invests money, but rather than a fixed rate of return like a bank, they have an ownership position in the company. Of course, I'm sure everyone listening in knows that. But as an advisor, I have chosen to go down that path over the past 10 years. I have not taken any cash as an advisor for 10 years, only equity. And it's been a fabulous way to align my goals with the company goals. It's been way more exciting. It becomes a long-term transaction for both the company and for myself. And um, it makes me think long and hard before I decided to to begin to work with an organization. And I, I usually have about in a given year, about six companies that I work for. Some of them have been a very long time. I've been on the HubSpot advisory board since 2007. Um, and they're emblematic of the reason why I love this, because I joined them. They had eight employees, no customers, and beta software. And today they're public on the New York Stock Exchange with a $6 billion market cap. So that's the ultimate. Um, and I love playing the game. So I wish I had known that earlier because there are a few companies I worked with that if I had taken equity, I would be in a much bigger house than I'm in now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank you. That's great. And what about books, you know, along the way, other than the 11 books that you've written, including Phenocracy and the new rules of marketing marketing and PR? PR. Yeah. What, uh, What else have you picked up and read along the way that has had an impact on you? So I'm a big fan of Seth Godin and um, all of the books that Seth Godin has written, I have read. (laughs) I have a collection of every book he ever wrote and I've read, read, read them all. One thing I really liked, which is a book by David Byrne. He's the, the front man of the talking heads. And he wrote a book, uh, came, originally came out, I want to say maybe 10 years ago, and it's called How Music Works. Now, what was really interesting about this book is it's a combination of a memoir of David Byrne, who I'm a fan of, and number two, a history of live music over the millennial. I mean, it's a millennia. It's like hundreds and hundreds of years going back. And he looks at how different successful live music acts has a lot to do with the technology of the day. So that initially, say a thousand years ago, music was listened to in a church. And so the music that was successful in a church had lots of reverberation and it was really interesting. It was really focused on what would sound best in a church. And then later on with amplification, what would sound best in a theater? And then with serious upgrades to amplification, what would sound best in a, in a, you know, in a sports stadium. Really interesting. And the third part of the book is how to succeed in the music business if you're an artist or, a, or an, in the music technology space. And I'm not, I'm not a musical artist, but I, I found many, many parallels to what I do as an entrepreneur and as an author and, and, and as a speaker and so on. So I just thought this book was really, really interesting on a lot of levels. David, thank you very much indeed for giving me your time today and coming on the show. Of course, Don. This has been really great fun. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. 
As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.